Amen. You guys go ahead and have a seat and welcome to our first vision service of Hope Hickory. It's in case we haven't met yet, my name is Kenny. I'm the pastor here at Hope Community Church Hickory, and thank you so much for joining us today. Um, uh, we've been able to get off to a pretty good start. Uh, a couple weeks ago, we were able to do our first setup here, and if you got here early and saw the slideshow, um, we were able to spend our first worship gathering together going out and serving the Conover School and serving the special needs community in our city. And um, also with all the fundraising that we were able to do, like it was really uncomfortable fundraising to make this day possible. Okay, I had to go on Kenny's Beg for Money tour. I hated every single second of it. But we were able to tithe 10% of everything that we raised to another local church plant that's being sent out of Hickory and into Charlotte. And Casa Viva is going to be launching, and we helped them reach their fundraising goal as well. So God's been able to do some big things already. Amen. And... I share some of the things with you just to kind of show, show you like what we want to be about. And that's what today is all about. Today's casting vision, not just what we as local Hope Community Church want to be about, but what God's word says the church is supposed to be about. So with that in mind, go ahead. If you have your Bibles, you're going to open with me to the book of Acts, chapter 6. And while you're turning there, just for a little bit of context, if you're familiar, at the end of the book of Matthew, Jesus, he's risen from the dead, he's gathered his disciples together, and he gave them their mission. He told them to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, whenever he gave them that mission, they might have been asking themselves, how? How are we supposed to go and make disciples of all nations? And then in Acts chapter 1, he has everyone gathered together again, about 120 of his followers, about 40 days or so after he had resurrected. And it says in verse 6 of chapter 1, it says, So when the people had come together, they asked Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? What they're asking is, Jesus, is this the time where you're going to overthrow the Roman Empire, take the throne in Jerusalem, and make Israel a leading world power once again? Jesus says, no, that's not what we're doing. He says in Verses 7 and 8, he said to them very graciously, It's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power. This is the how you are going to go and make disciples of all nations. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then Jesus, he's taken up in the cloud, out of their sight, into the heavens, and they're just all kind of standing there staring for a while, because what would you do if you just saw a man risen into the clouds and just disappear from your sight? And then some angels come down, they say, what are you guys looking at? Hey, he's, yeah, he's gone right now, but he's going to come back the same way you see him leave, but until then, there's still work to do. So they go back to Jerusalem. Uh, all 120 of them, they're gathered together praying for about a week. And then suddenly, the scripture says in chapter 2, the Holy Spirit came rushing upon them like a mighty rushing wind. And there was something like tongues of fire that rested on each of their heads. And they started speaking in all kinds of different languages. Now, at that time, there were people from all over the known world that were in town for Jerusalem, in Jerusalem for the Passover festivities. And they all hear these local Galileans speaking their own native languages, and they're hearing, quote, the mighty works of God. Now, some people assume that they were drunk, but Peter says, 
We're not drunk. He gets up and he preaches. He tells them from the scriptures all about Jesus. He gives an altar call of sorts. And 3,000 people were saved and baptized that day. And thus this movement we now call church was born. And over the next few chapters, we read details of this incredible movement. And one of the overwhelming, incredible, and characteristics of this early church was their incredible unity. It says in 2.44, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. Acts 2.46, And day by day they were attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. Acts 4.24, They lifted their voices together to God. 4.32, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. And at the beginning of chapter 4, we see that this church has now grown to over 5,000 people. But how many of you know that a movement of God never happens without a fight? And in the midst of this incredible movement, we see them being persecuted. We see Peter and John being arrested and threatened in chapter 4. They're arrested again in chapter 5. The angel breaks them out of jail. Then they get arrested again, and this time they're beaten before they are released. And then in chapter 5, we see the enemy trying to use corruption in the church with Ananias and Sapphira. It's a crazy story. I don't have time to get into today. You can read on your own time. But to put it nicely, God subtracts them from his church. You see, God has many ways of growing his church. He adds to his church. He subtracts from his church in order to help it grow healthier. Probably his favorite way is whenever he multiplies his church, as we'll see in our passage today. But one aspect of God's math that he will never condone in his church is division. And in Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 1, we see division trying to rear its ugly head among the believers. So if you're there at Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, and it reads, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute or reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, where's Pumbaa? I don't know. And <laughs> Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Do you guys pray with me one more time? We'll get into this a little bit further. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you so much for all that you are and all that you do for us. Thank you so much for making this day possible. I pray that in these moments, all the distractions and stress of life would cease as we focus on you and your glory and your goodness and your love. I thank you. We don't have to ask you to fill this room because we know by the power of your Holy Spirit you're already here, but I pray that we would have a greater awareness of your presence. I pray you would fill me in a new and fresh way because I know without you, without your love, without your power, without your glory, I can't say anything of any significance or importance today. So I pray that you build us up. You show us the priorities of your church and you do a work in each and every one of our hearts and lives today, Jesus. Thank you for all that you are and all we get to be in you. We love you. We love you, we love you. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. 
Now, I think it's really important for us, and it's very helpful for us to read passages like this in Acts chapter 6, because it shows us that the early church wasn't without its problems. I think so often we idealize the early church as if they weren't learning and growing just like we're going to. However, we have an example of a church that faces problems just like we do and we will, and we get to learn from them. Pastor Skip Isaac said it this way. He said, nobody's perfect. No church is perfect. No leader is perfect. There's only a perfect God with a perfect son who gives perfect salvation to imperfect people, and that's us. And here we see an imperfect church facing three big problems. The first problem we see them facing is growth. It says, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number. Now, growth is a good problem to have. But it can still be a problem nonetheless. Think about it. You start off with 120 people, and within a few weeks, maybe a few months if you're generous, now you've grown to over 5,000. There's going to be some problems. You have no organization. You have no plan. You're just reacting in that moment. Now, many people might say, well, that's the way it's supposed to be. We're not supposed to have organized religion. We're supposed to be (laughs) spirit-led. But organization can be and actually should be spirit-led. God was an organized God. He's the one who invented time. 1 Corinthians 14 says he is not a God of confusion. Therefore, everything must be done decently and in order. Now, to be fair, we can take that to an extreme where we get so caught up with our regularly scheduled program, it's as if we tell the Holy Spirit he needs to get on board with what we're doing. And that is so dangerous in and of itself. So there is a balance to be found here. However, in this particular passage, we see the way the church solves their problem is actually by becoming more organized. We'll get to more on that later. But here, we have this rapidly growing church with vastly different people. And whenever you have different people from different backgrounds with different worldviews, there's bound to be some tension. That's just natural. And here, we see We see tension building between two different people groups, the Hellenists and the Hebrews. Some translations refer to them as the Greek-speaking Jews and the Hebrew-speaking Jews. So these are two different types of Jewish people. The Hebrew Jews, they were those that were born in and around Jerusalem. They grew up going to Hebrew synagogues. They read from Hebrew texts, and they had their own Hebrew style of worship. Now, the Hellenistic Jews, or the Greek-speaking Jews, as some translations say, were those that were a part of what was called the diaspora. That was when throughout history, whenever uh, the Jewish people had been put into exile, they'd been dispersed all over the known world. Some did not make it back to their homeland. So they were still, they were still practicing Jews, but they grew up and they lived in Greek-speaking countries. They had their Greek text called the Septuagint. And most likely, many of these Hellenistic Jews, they came back in town for the Passover festivities. Sometimes they'd come back to Jerusalem for a vacation. A lot would uh, decide to retire in and around Jerusalem. And while they were there, a lot of these Jews came to faith in Jesus, and they decided to stay and be a part of this new Christian community. So we have two types of Jewish people who both came to Christ. Now they're referred to as Messianic Jews. So they shared the same faith, but naturally they would still congregate with those more like themselves. The Hellenistic Jews, they would come in Jerusalem. Real estate was very slim at the time, so they would develop their own neighborhoods outside the city limits, but still close enough to the city so they could come in and worship. So these two groups of people, they had this new common faith, but they primarily spoke different languages. They were used to different worship styles. They grew up with different worldviews. Naturally, tension was going to arise. 
And the second problem we see this church facing was the response to that tension, which was complaining. There's a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews. This word complaint can also be translated a murmuring or a grumbling. It's by definition a secret displeasure not openly avowed. It's the Greek word gongosmos, which is actually the Greek version of an automatopoeia. It's supposed to sound like a grumble. Gongosmos. Grumbling, murmuring, and complaints. It's always been a problem that the church has faced and will continue to face, especially if the church is growing. Can you imagine some of those original 120 people who started that church start to murmur among themselves? Well, it's not how it used to be. All these different people. Pastors don't focus on me as much anymore. If I don't get there early enough, someone's going to take my seat. I like the old carpet better, but no one asks my opinion anymore, do they? We all have heard it, haven't we, Pastor Brandon? <laughs> we've, we've heard them all. <laughs> there are so many ways that we can fall into murmuring. And if we're not careful, we'll allow the enemy to use that to cause division among the body. That's why in Proverbs chapter 6, there's a list of seven things that are an abomination to the Lord. And the last one that is listed, I like the way the NIV puts it best. It says, what the Lord hates and what is detestable to him is when a person stirs up conflict in the community. We all have opinions. We all have points of view. We all have ways that we think things should be done, but it is an abomination to the Lord whenever we take those opinions and points of views and start grumbling and murmuring and complaining and stirring up conflict in the community rather than pursuing a united front. Caleb Blanton, a worship pastor at our sending church, I think he has the best quote whenever it comes to this issue of complaining. He says, contribute before you criticize. And in the wisdom and leadership of the apostles, that's exactly what they're going to make the complainers do when addressing the third problem, which is people in need. It says, a complaint arose from the Hellenists because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now, This was a real problem that needed to be addressed. The Hellenists, they were complaining, and they were absolutely right that this was a problem. However, their response to the problem was wrong whenever they resorted to grumbling and complaining. There are problems all over our world that the church needs to address, and the church should rightly lead to the charge in. Because as long as the world has problems, the church will continue to have problems as well. But these problems can either lead to growth or we can let them cause division. So the question that I want to explore here for the time that we have remaining is, how can we intentionally diminish division? How can we identify some of these things and try to nip this division in the bud in the early stages of our new church? I think the first thing that we can do is we can set clear priorities. In verse 2, it said, And the twelve summoned the full number of disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. You see, the apostles, they weren't saying that this wasn't an important issue. They were just clarifying that they themselves couldn't oversee the project. In fact, the New Living Translation paraphrases this and says, We as apostles should spend our time teaching the Word of God, not running a food program. Now, does a food program need to be run? Absolutely. They're not dismissing the problem. It's just that their role can't focus on that right now. They will support it. They'll be involved in it. They will lay their hands on and bless that ministry, but they had to know their role and know their limits. Maybe they learned from 
reading about Moses in Exodus chapter 18. Whenever Moses was leading this newfound nation of Israel, he had led out of Egypt. His father-in-law comes to visit. And while his father-in-law is there, he notices that Moses has just gone from sunup to sundown all day long, dealing with all of the individual problems from all of the people in the nation. And he gets back after a long day of counseling, sees his father-in-law, thinks his father-in-law is going to be impressed because of all of his leadership and his responsibility. And his father-in-law looks at him and says, this is not good. You're going to wear yourself out and wear out everyone else with you. What you need to do is focus on teaching people God's ways, handle the big issues. You need to delegate everything else. I remember hearing a story about a pastor who did a sermon series on marriage. And his congregation had an incredible response. And uh, the, as a result, he was getting so many marriage counseling sessions being booked. And he's talking to his mentor, almost kind of bragging about it. He said, man, these counseling sessions are, are picking up so much because of that sermon series. I'm not even doing most of the preaching anymore. My associate pastor's doing that because I'm just swamped with all these counseling sessions. And his mentor says, that's not good. He said, you need to make a choice. You need to start delegating those counseling sessions or you need to make him the lead pastor because what you're going to find out is everyone's going to want to go to him now because he's the main voice in the church and you're going to have a mess on your hands because no one had a clearly defined role. You know, one of the things that could be so frustrating about ministry, and if we haven't realized it yet, we will, is that ministry never stops. There is nothing that we as a church could ever do on this side of eternity that could ever be enough. So we'll always have people coming up saying, well, you should be doing this or you should be doing that. People outside of our church that are going to be picking apart different things. And I love the way that the apostles handled this murmuring. They said in verses 3 and 4, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you. They say, we're not even going to find the people for it. You brought up the problem. We agree with you it's a problem, but we want you to take ownership of it. So pick out from among you seven men of good reputation, not the complainers like you, but who are full of the spirit and of wisdom who we will appoint to this duty. And they go out and they find seven men, and I'm not going to read all of their names again, but I love the fact that all of those names are Greek names because who are the ones complaining? The Greeks. They say, we'll support you, we'll empower you, we'll bless you, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and ministry of the word. Later on, Paul, he would liken the church to a body. And the head is not the pastor, the head is Christ. But the church is a body, a singular unit that will function healthily and in harmony if everyone knows their roles and does their part. And what I've been learning over the past couple of years is that your role can change from time to time, and that's okay. Because the body has many members, many parts, many roles. But I do believe that our priorities should always stay the same. The priorities of the church must be clearly defined, and I believe that this passage shows us exactly what the three main priorities of the church should be. And the first clear priority of this church is the Word of God. I read a commentator who wrote, It's wrong to put serving tables before preaching of the Word of God because it's always wrong to put man before God. That, in a nutshell, is the real trouble with the world today. Man's at the center of everything. Man is everything. You know, many churches, especially in America, have given up, have neglected or unprioritized the preaching of the Word of God to serve tables. Serving the tables of preferences, serving the tables of opinions. Many fall into the trap of thinking, oh, people don't really want to hear sermons. 
People need to hear old history and context or Greek or Hebrew words. So we'll just preach more of a social gospel. We'll turn our services into more of a self-help program. Now, we'll never use those semantics, but that's the trajectory a lot of the churches are taking nowadays. Or we'll buy into sayings such as, preach the gospel, use words if necessary. But Paul says in Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. There are tables that need to be served. There are problems that need to be addressed. But we as a church must always prioritize the word of God because we will not make a lasting impact if we can feed a mouth, but we can't properly feed a soul. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 4, 4, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. He said in John 6, 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. He said in John chapter 8, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And Peter says in his epistle, for you have been born again. How? through the living and enduring word of God. You know, many well-meaning Christians will say things like, I don't need to talk about my faith, I'll just show them. I don't need to Bible thump, I'll do more good just sitting at the bar meeting people where they are. Now, there are levels to that which are true, which is why I say they're well-meaning. You should be able to show your faith. You shouldn't have to Bible thump. You should meet people where they are. However, you're going to have to open up your mouth and say something at some point eventually. That's why Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. And sadly, that last part is what a lot of Christians miss. Do so with gentleness and respect. We speak the truth in love. Now, how do we do that? How do we become prepared to give an answer for the hope that we have by prioritizing the word of God in our lives, not just as a church, but in all of our individual lives. You see here, whenever we gather together for our worship gathering, sermons and preaching and teaching of God's word is going to be the focal point of our Sunday services. Now, why is that? Well, I know for me personally, whenever I preach a message, I want to accomplish two things. One, I want to give a clear opportunity for anyone who has not come to faith in Jesus to hear a clear gospel message and find their hope in him. And second, for those who have already come to faith, to be able to better understand their faith, better articulate their faith, and better share their faith. The Bible tells us pastors to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Now, who are the saints? You are. Every single man, woman, and child who's put their faith in Jesus Christ is now a carrier of his Holy Spirit and has been deemed as a saint in God's eyes. Now, you might say, whoa, 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 whoa. Kenny, that can't be said about me. Now, I've done too much. I've been there. I've done that. I still struggle with this. I still struggle with that. There's no way that could be said about me. And my response would be, exactly. That's how good he is. Now, go tell people about him. You see, if the word of God becomes the main focus and priority in our lives, then we'll stop focusing on ourselves so much and what we may or may not have done, and we'll start focusing on him and what he has done, and we'll realize that there is nothing more important in all of eternity than the fact that God came down in the person of Jesus Christ, and he used a cross to bridge the gap of separation that sin had created between man and God so that we could be forgiven and be able to live in an unhindered relationship with the God who made us for all of eternity. That's the gospel. That's the good news. 
And that is the beautiful truth that this entire collection of scriptures is pointing towards and explaining. So that is the truth that we rally around. And that is the truth that we unite under, which is the second priority of the church, which is unity. Verse 5a says what they said, please the whole gathering. You see, the enemy, very cunning, was trying to use a real problem, a real issue that needed to be addressed and use that to cause division among the church. Why? Because the enemy hates unity. Because they know if the church loses its unity, it loses its message. And the enemy wants to tear the church apart in hopes of keeping people from hearing the word of God. And if the enemy's number one priority is to hinder the word of God, then our number one priority should be to spread the word of God. So Paul says in Philippians 2, do everything without grumbling and arguing so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world. Get this, how? By holding firm to the word of life. Paul says we live in a crazy world, but if we hold firm to the word and are united under his word, we will shine like stars in the world. Come on, somebody. In a time where our nation probably hasn't been this divided since the Civil War, with so much political and social unrest, where for some reason nowadays everyone just loves to throw their opposing opinions in other people's faces and pick a fight, could you dream with me for a second? What kind of impact could a church make if it could actually be a beacon and example of true unity in the midst of a divided world? What if we could see more churches where people from different races and different worldviews and even different political opinions could be united under the word of God because his word is so much more important? What if we could truly understand that kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever? You see, priorities give proper perspective. And if we fail to prioritize the word of God, we will focus more on earthly things. And if we allow that to happen, the enemy will wreak havoc on us and cause division. And you know what? Nowadays, more often than not, it starts on social media. But if we prioritize the word of God and we are united under his word, then we can effectively carry out the third priority of the church, which is serve the people. Now, some might push back on this and say, no, Kenny, that needs to be first on the list. Now, there would have been a time where I probably would have argued the same thing. Because earthly needs are important, and they're vital component that the church needs to be involved in, and our church will always be involved in. But if we were to put this first on the list, our focus would be on earthly things. And we cannot effectively help an earthly problem without a heavenly perspective. C.S. Lewis better explains this whenever he said, If you read history you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that we have become so ineffective in this one. You see, when Christians effectively understand that this life is just a vapor, and we understand what lengths God went to in order to save us, we can then understand that this world is not our home, and we can live our lives here as a response to his goodness. Now, why do you think these Hellenists had a heart for the widows in the first place? You know, we hear it all the time. One of the most famous um, quotes we hear from Scripture, especially whenever things get messy, things get divided, people will be quoting, love your neighbor. Love your neighbor, which is to say love your neighbor as, as yourself. But that's not enough. 
know, it was never supposed to be enough. You know, Jesus, he didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. And no one could keep that law. Everyone was trying. <laughs> but we forget that in John 13, Jesus, he switched it up on them. He said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. All right, Jesus, we heard that one before. But no longer as yourself. He said, I want you to love one another just as I have loved you. He said, I no longer want you to focus on loving in the capacity in which you want to be loved. I want you to focus on a love that is beyond you. I want you to look at the love that I have given you, and I want you to go and love like that. That's what this early church was starting to capture, loving like Jesus loved. That's why they would have a heart for the overlooked. That's why they would have the heart for those who couldn't help themselves. You know, even the Roman emperor Julian, he took notice. He despised the Christian faith. He was the furthest thing from a Christian you could get. But he admitted that they were gaining converts because of their generosity to the poor and the needy, which made the faith so attractive. He said this, quote, he said, Nothing has contributed to the progress of the superstition of the Christians as their charity to strangers. These impious Galileans provide not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. It's as if these Christians had a draw towards those who had nothing to give but everything to gain because they knew that's who they were. God, who had nothing to gain but everything to give, still chose to come and save them. So as a response, they're just loving as he loves. They're so fixated on the word that their lives became a response to it. And remember, church, that the word is not just the text we hold in our hands, but he's the savior that we hold in our hearts. That's why John started off his gospel by saying, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And I'm here to tell you, church, the darkness will never overcome him. No matter what viruses come, no matter what the political scene ends up looking like, it won't last forever, but he will. That's why he says in Isaiah 51, the earth will wear out like a garment, but my salvation will last forever. My righteousness will never fail. That's why we prioritize the word. We unite under the word, and then we go and live out the word. And that's exactly what this early church did. And the result is seen in verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase. And the numbers of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Even their enemies, the ones who hated the church, trying to put a stop to it, were still changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they were coming to faith because this church decided to diminish division and set clear priorities. I also think it's amazing to note that Stephen, one of those chosen to serve the tables, is actually the one who preaches the longest recorded sermon throughout the book of Acts. His responsibility, his role, was to serve the neglected widows. But yet he had been so equipped by the teaching of the word of God that whenever it came time, he was ready to give a defense for the hope that was in him. And he did so with gentleness and respect, even though they still killed him for it. But that's a sermon for another time. I'm going to ask the band to go ahead and come back up, and we're going to close here with another time of worship together, a time of response, a time of reflection, a time of asking God that he would set these clear priorities in our church and in all of our lives individually. And, you know, I noticed whenever I was first studying this passage and seeing these priorities of the church 
that by the grace and the wisdom of God, this is exactly how our church name and our core values are set up. You know, and, the, and these were given back, way back in 2016. And we didn't know what we were doing, just the Spirit doing what the Spirit does. Because Hope Community Church exists to first to give hope. And hope is found in the Word of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God unto salvation. So first and foremost, we will always be a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church because that is where true hope is found. Next, Hope Community Church exists to give hope and create community. Brothers and sisters, the family of God, united by the blood of Jesus, united as a family, those who were those that Jesus prayed for in the garden right before he's arrested. He's literally sweating drops of blood in the garden, praying that we would be one as he and the Father were one. So as a community, united by the hope found in the word of God, we then as a result go and be the church. Loving as he loves, caring as he cares. Not just being hearers of the word, but doers also. And if we as an entire church, not just our leadership, not just our core launch team, but an entire body operate in this order, man, we just might be an avenue in which the world can see the true agape love that captures the very essence of who our God is. Maybe there's some family, families in Hickory that might get a glimpse of what Jesus is really all about. If we can set those clear priorities, if we can be ready and equipped by the word of God in our lives, ready to give defense for the hope that we have, ready to share the word at a moment's notice, ready to tell people who God is to us. Every single person in this room has a story. Every single person in this room, there's a reason why you're here. God has done a work in your life. Man, we need to get good about telling people about it. We need to be good about getting excited about it. How often does the enemy try to come in and try to dumb down those incredible things that God's done in our lives? No more. That's not going to happen in this room. There's no room for that. No, we're going to turn a community rec center into a sanctuary for the living God. And we live in incredible times. And I'm so thankful that I get to be a part of this with all of you. Go ahead and stand with us. I'm going to pray for us one more time. And then we're going to Continue to worship our God through song. Father, thank you so much for all of my brothers and sisters in this room. Father, I pray that you do a work in each and every one of our lives right now. I pray a new fire will be lit in every, every single one of our spirits. Father, I pray that you would give us a renewed passion and love for your written word. I pray that you would give us discipline and devotion, spending time with you every single day. Father, I pray that you would give us your eyes to see this community and the families of Hickory, North Carolina, and all of Catawba County the way that you see them. And I pray you'd give us feet of fire to go wherever you would call us to go. I pray we would live every single day on mission. I pray what happens in this room would not stay in this room. But I pray that you would send us out into our workplaces, into our homes, into our communities, into our schools, carrying the hope of the word of God, the hope of Jesus Christ that you offered all. I thank you that you're not willing that any should perish, but all should come into repentance, Father. Thank you that we get to be a part of that mission. Oh, Father, stir our hearts. Spirit, fall on us in a fresh way. Inhabit the praise of your people right now, Jesus. We love you.
We love you. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.